Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. We're here, we're here today with a very special guest, one of our own colleagues here at Talbot, uh, Dr. Kyle Strobel, who's Associate Professor of Spiritual Theology. He has more degrees than a thermometer, and uh, he has degrees in philosophy and New Testament and a PhD in theology from the University of Aberdeen. He's been teaching here for several years and is a prolific author. Uh, it sort of runs in the family, I think. Uh, but w- we've just got recently a revised edition of his his terrific book on leadership and power, particularly in the church. It's entitled The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. Subtitled Searching for Jesus' Path of Power in a Church that Has Abandoned It. So Kyle, welcome. Great to have you with us and congrats on the revised edition of the book coming out. We'll talk in just a moment about why you had to revise it because there's a story behind that too. So first, tell us about the, the imagery that formed the title of the book. What what are you trying to communicate with that? Yeah, yeah. No, thanks, Scott. No, it's so good to be here with you. And yeah, the the image of the dragon and the lamb. I mean, it's a particularly kind of sharp one, and it's it's imagery that shows up in the book of Revelation. And you know, one of the interesting things that Scripture continually does is it always presents two paths for people, and those paths are set up in different sorts of ways. And so you have the world, or you have the kingdom. You have the flesh, or you have the spirit. You have, in this case, the dragon, or you have the lamb, or one of the favorite images we use is from James 3, which is you have the way from above, which is the way of Jesus, and you have the way from below. And the way from below is interesting in James 3 because he names it earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, what we've come to call the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so what James articulates there in Scripture continually does this, is that the way of God is, is one kind of way that's totally contradictory from every other way, and, th- and that includes the demonic. And so if we live in the flesh, we're actually living in a, a dragon-like sort of way, a demonic-like sort of way. And, and we see this um, being named all throughout Scripture. I think sometimes we confuse when Jesus you know, says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, as if he's just, I don't know, being rude or something, you know. And it's, he's actually naming what Peter's doing. And it's interesting in that context, he actually says, you're setting your mind on the things of man. And so he links the things of man with the things of Satan. And so we wanted to try to use this imagery because it's the way scripture paints a very sharp picture that we have to choose. And the danger is, the the fantasy I think most of us have is that we think as long as we're good intentioned, as long as it's for good ends, that of course it's the way of the lamb. And what we've discovered is the exact opposite is the truth, is that because we have good intentions, we often actually employ the way of the dragon to try to further the kingdom. And of course, as scripture reminds us, God is not mocked. Um, what you reap, or what you sow, you will reap. All right, so let's just let's cut to the chase here right away. What, how would you describe what the way of the dragon is? I think the way of the lamb, I think we've we, that may be more easily recognizable for most people, but what succinctly, what is the way of the dragon? What is the way of the lamb? Yeah, the, the way we kind of delineate between the two. So the way of the dragon is power and strength for the sake of control and or domination. Did I say that again? Just Power and strength for the sake of control and usually domination. Whereas the way of the lamb, which 
is probably most clearly articulated, I mean, obviously on the cross, but by Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and 10, is power in weakness for the sake of love. And, and I think what's important about that is that it's still a powerful way. It's not like Christians are called to be weak. <laughs> it's, in fact, we're called to be powerful. But it turns out that the kind of power that we find in Jesus is an entirely different economy than the one we find in the world. Okay, so power in weakness. All right, spell out a little bit more what you mean by that, or, you know, what, what does that look like? Yeah, so when, when Paul kind of learns this lesson, there's a, the, one of my favorite and one of the most fascinating kind of scenes in the New Testament, I think, is when we're told that Paul is given this very weird gift from, from God of a messenger of Satan. And so <laughs> because Paul has this ecstatic vision of the risen Lord, or he has this, some, he's called up to the third heaven, it's kind of ambiguous. Whatever happened in that moment, it didn't cure his character. And so the Lord gives him a thorn in the flesh, what's called the messenger of Satan, to keep him humble. Paul prays three times, Lord, take this away from me, you know, which is, seems reasonable. And the risen Lord tells Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What's interesting then is Paul goes on to say, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of God might tabernacle upon me. We usually translate that rest upon me, although tabernacle obviously is a significant biblical term. The whole notion there, though, is power does not come from within. And I think this is important when you listen to Jesus talk about the parable, and particularly the parables about the kingdom. Why, why does the widow, when she put, puts her might in, why does she give more? Because she obviously didn't give more. Right? And, and we could read that, I think, superficially and say she gave more of what she had, so percentage-based she gave more. I think what Jesus is actually saying there, as Dallas Willard would say, is that because there's a kind of realism to the kingdom in the sense that, no, that money will do more, actually, in the kingdom because of the nature of the kingdom economy. And so if we, if we give ourselves to embrace our weakness— to receive God's power, that it may tabernacle upon us, then what we discover is the way of power as Jesus actually offers it to us. I, I think the danger, and, and you know, if you want books of Scripture that really spell this out, I mean, I would say all of Paul very clearly does, but the two um, epistles to Corinth, so first and second Corinthians, and then Philippians, really spell this out very clearly. And what's interesting about those cities is those cities are cities that are very similar to American kind of kind of American life. The Corinthians, in particular, were obsessed with the visible and what looked powerful. So Im- image maintenance, image maintenance, platform building, like all sorts of this stuff. This is what they want. And so Paul attacks what they called the su- what he called the super apostles, right? What we would call celebrity Christians. He attacks these folks and he basically says, "You think this is what power looks like? Let's look at the cross." And, and this is what, you know, this, you know, I should say up front, you know, I, I am convinced that the most important question and conversation that is not being had in the church today is about what power is. I think it is more important than questions about vaccines. I think it's more important than our politics. It is the most important question because it funds every other thing you believe. Everything you do is funded entirely by your view of power. But 
I didn't get into this project and my co-author didn't get in this project because we thought we nailed this. Like we, we got into this because we came to seminary as young men who wanted to be great. I came to seminary. I didn't have fantasies about praying by someone's bedside while they're dying. I, I wanted to be awesome. I wanted, I wanted to be on stages. I wanted to have a platform. I wanted to be great. And then I ran into Jesus consistently, and he kept pointing to a different way. And so for us, this, this book is a, is, was a real journey of our own to wrestle through, Jesus, what does this mean? Because we looked around, and we just didn't see it. But we also looked around, and we saw the evangelicalism we knew falling apart at the seams. Because everyone that looked powerful growing up for me has lost their ministries. And it has been such an astonishing reality over the past even just five years. And I think what we're seeing is we're seeing what happens when God judges his church. But we're also seeing what happens when the church tries to sow in the way of the world and reap in the way of the kingdom. And that just doesn't work. I suspected that... uh some of the the impetus for writing the book came out of your own experience some of the things some of the things you've observed like you mentioned but also i appreciate just your your own personal journey in this which comes out in a lot of places in the book uh so it i mean it's a bit autobiographical and you're you know you don't try to sugarcoat it <laughs> you and your co-author are pretty honest about some of the some of the stuff you wrestled with as younger men you know, yeah. entering pastoral ministry, based, you know, based on some of the models you've seen. And, we've, you know, we've got a lot of pretty well-known folks who have stumbled pretty badly. Yeah. Um, and you, your point in the book, I think, is it's not hard to see the connection between some of those stumbles and a, an unbiblical view of power. Yeah. So how widespread do you think this is in a lot of our churches? It is everywhere. You know, it's interesting. If you just take that line from 2 Corinthians, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I I rarely meet a Christian who believes that's true. I rarely meet a pastor whose church is governed by that principle. And if you think, you know, it's not like that's the only place. I mean, how often, you know, when I live my life, do I believe that the first will be last and the last will be first? Does that govern the choices I make? Is that the sort of thing that guides how I consider how our church is doing? (laughs) And I think this is the problem is we've, the modern church has embraced a very secular vision. And, you know, we didn't shoot a sugar coat. I mean, we felt very called not to, both in our own lives, but also in the church as a whole. And I think what we wanted to say in our flesh was, you know, it's not great out there. There's some unhelpful things going on or... Yeah, yeah, maybe some things that go on we call bad. But what became clear biblically is the church has tried to wield demonic power for the sake of the kingdom, and it's it's warping its soul from within. And unless we do something about it, I mean, right now we're reaping decades of this. The real question now is, well, what are we going to start sowing now? Because I think even even worse compared to the 80s and the 70s and 60s, we're even feeling more pressure today, I think, of the world closing in on us, rejecting us, and now we're even more tempted to respond by confronting worldliness on its own terms rather than embracing the way of Jesus. Kyle, let me tease some of this out mm-hmm. a bit, because I think our listeners, maybe by this point, they've got the point here. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, you know, with the number of, you know, really serious stumbles 
that have been well publicized. Yeah. I don't think it's hard to to mm. get the point. Yeah. But how it plays out in practice, you know, what a church mm. that's built on this would actually look like. Totally. And one question that comes up is, you know, we're, we're admonished sort of regularly to work on our weaknesses, to fix them. Yeah. As best. I mean, we're, and we're called, you know, we're not called to wallow in our weakness. We're called to fix the weaknesses that we can. And I think you, you may hit a point at, you know, at some point at a certain age where you stop worrying about fixing those <laughs> things and just, you know, you operate in your strengths. Mm. But it sounds like you're suggesting something a little different. So what's, what's the balance here between fixing the things that you can fix that you know you're not good at and taking advantage of the path of power by weakness? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, uh, let me go back first to 2 Corinthians 12. So, you know, when Paul responds to the Lord, he actually names what, what, what kind of constitutes. He says weakness, so he gives this broad category of weakness. But then he includes things like persecutions, like calamities, like insults, and, and he boasts in these. You know, it's funny because I, I read that passage and I'm like, I, I'm not quite there yet. I, I, I get attacked online from time to time and I've never boasted in it. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to be there. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, totally. And, you know, persecutions I can get. I mean, I, I obviously, you know, would never like persecution, but calamities, <laughs> boasting in calamities. And again, this is a, this is a different vision. And I think if we take seriously the fact that it is in our weakness that the power of the Lord is discovered, again, it's not, it's not somehow saying that we accept our weakness and we just kind of say, well, this is who I am, but it's in our weakness that we come to embrace because, it's, again, it's going to be by grace alone. It's going to be something we receive. So, so let me turn to an example that I think clarifies some of this, and it's the spiritual gift question. I think the, I think the question of spiritual gifts is really interesting. You know, I grew up in the middle of a revival of spiritual gifts. So when I grew up, this is when everyone was recovering 1 Corinthians 12. We always talked. I can't tell you how many times I heard about spiritual gifts growing up. What was interesting, though, is the way that I was taught about spiritual gifts growing up in the kind of evangelical megachurches was there was nothing spiritual about them. So we just got rid of that word. So what we actually meant was you have a bunch of natural abilities. and, And here's the irony that came out of that whole conversation. We helped people figure out their natural giftings. We then told them to focus on those. So in the middle of a book of, to, to the Corinthians, an entire two-volume series of books that Paul writes, solely focusing on the cross and power and weakness, we trained people to never actually minister in weakness and to only actualize their natural giftings. I mean, that is how sharp of a blindness we've embraced when it comes to the biblical material. I think what's clear about 1 Corinthians 12 is you don't have spiritual gifts. Paul reiterates time and time again ad nauseum, these are the spirits, the spirit, the spirit, the spirit. He just kind of constantly returns to the spirit there. These are things you don't have. They're not natural giftings. Um, As as one of our biblical colleagues here, Ken Birding, would say, they're, they're more like callings, actually. Yeah, more like ministries. And ministries that you're, you're, you're to enter into. They're not things you kind of turn to yourself and say, what do I want to do? You actually have to discern these in community because they're based on being a part of the body. And so that is a, a good example of, of a kind of reality that I think 
we just accept these natural kind of um, constructs. Now, what I'm not saying is this, because here's here's the problem. So a lot of people hear me say things like this and say, okay, so wait, what do I do? I, I just look at what I'm bad at. So I'm not good at math. Should I become an accountant? <laughs> no. <laughs> the answer is no. Right now, what's interesting about this is that I think the Lord more often than not, for good reason, calls us into places where we have natural abilities. It actually isn't for your good, though. You actually don't want that to be true. We'd rather be Moses. We'd rather say, well, all I know, Lord, is I'm bad at speaking, and have the Lord say, great, you're going to be my mouthpiece. Because <laughs> in those places, we're desperate. We're like, we're going to throw ourselves on God. We're not going to rely upon ourselves. But more often than not, I find that there's people I meet who are brilliant rhetoricians who are called into ministry and pastoral ministry. But now they have to hear Paul say there's a style of, of preaching that he says in 1 Corinthians that undermines the power of the cross. And so if you're a pastor and you go into the pulpit and you wield yourself, you wield your natural abilities, you are emptying the cross of its power because you are wielding your natural gifts. So now your weakness is actually your temptation to self-actualize. And so I'd say for most of us, let's take the accountant who's a brilliant, you know, brilliant at math, knows how to do their job, and in many ways maybe does their job and goes into cruise control. It's actually you do your job absent from God. You do your job absent from the love of neighbor. You do your job absent from humility. And what ends up happening is you're cultivating the virtues of the flesh instead of cultivating virtues that are distinctively Christian-like humility. And so we can see that there's actually, it's not merely saying, like, I don't, I don't think we have to go looking for our weakness. <laughs> I think it's everywhere. And that, and that should not be difficult that, to discern. And if it is difficult to discern, that's another layer of problems we have. You know, and now humility but, becomes the but key you're one. But you're not suggesting that churches should go out and hire bad teachers. Well, and that's as right. Past pastors. Totally. No, no, no. It's not like we take someone who can't play the guitar and say, you lead worship, right? And so now it's, it's really helping people discern their callings. I, I would say, though, and here's something that Dallas Willard pushed us on. Um, and we'll get, I, I imagine, to a little bit of the, the way we wrote the book was a little unusual and it included sitting at the feet of people that we consider sages in the way of Jesus. And as we sat at, at Willard's feet, he said to us at one point, he said, you know, up until 100 years ago, you could, you could have been seen as a very faithful pastor and been a bad preacher. And he just kind of stopped and paused and said, you know, I'm not sure that could be true today. And that, that really did strike me as interesting, where we now primarily understand ministry in performative terms rather than in terms of Christian faithfulness. And, and, and that's interesting. I, I think that's something to really consider, that, that actually there are a lot of people that we may think of as, as mediocre preachers who would be vastly superior pastors than a brilliant rhetorician would be. Well, I think, you know, you had an interesting conversation with Eugene Peterson mm. in the book that yeah. you cited. He pastored, you know, small churches in rural Montana for <laughs> a lot of his life. And, you know, it wasn't—I mean, there were a lot of years that he pastored in, in t- almost total obscurity until yeah. he started writing. I mean, even you were unfamiliar with him when you first first stumbled totally, totally almost by accident. That's stumbled right. onto his books. I think he he might be a good example. I don't know. I've never heard him preach or speak before, but the way he writes, uh, 
is all about faithfulness and not, and not performance. Yeah, well, all the people we interviewed, I'm not sure you would say any of them follow the, like, archetype of the dynamic speaker. I mean, Willard, you know, he stopped getting invited to conferences because people said he was too boring early in his career. <laughs> it's interesting when you think how many pastors' conferences, like, you take a look at, or not just pastors, but just conferences in general, are they looking for wisdom or are they looking for young and exciting? I mean, it's interesting. I mean, most of them follow the world to a T in that regard. Yeah, I remember, you know, da- Dallas Willard was one of the, I mean, he's, in my view, the most Christ-like person mm-hmm. I've ever known. Totally. There are a lot of churches that he, he would never get hired at. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. And would, you know, there's some, I had a publisher once tell me, I'm not sure Dallas would be published today if he was starting out. I mean, we really need to sit how, and think how, about how tragic some of these be? things, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you wonder, you know, is the next Willard not going to be published because they can't play a game of platform building? And it's, it's interesting to think about what has happened to the constructs in evangelicalism about what, what is valuable and what is meaningful. Let me ask you about the way of the Lamb. Because in a church that I wouldn't say the church is persecuted in the United States, because my wife works for Open Doors and she knows yeah. she knows real persecution. Yeah. You know, if you think you've seen persecution, you know, totally. You need to update your passport and yeah, and, yeah. and go to Afghanistan and some of these other places. But where where does the way of the Lamb fit with you know advocating for things like religious freedom or Political advocacy on behalf of the unborn, totally. you know, for example. So, where, where, how does that fit together? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, let me start with something very simple, actually, and this would include any political action, any action in the world today. Let, let me say right up front, we have to start with the claim that as a Christian, this is a profoundly difficult question. My biggest worry is that I, on, on left and right. Both sides seem to think on almost all of these issues that the response is obvious and clear. It is not. These questions are profoundly hard. And I worry that we embrace these cliche social media-like stances on these sorts of things. You know, the scriptures don't really have an immediate idea of of a voting citizen, <laughs> right? Like, it's hard to do these. You know, we have to do quite a lot of theology to understand yeah, I mean, what there, there public was, action. There, there was no voting yeah, in the first century. Of course not, yeah. You know, and somehow, you know, render to Caesar unto Caesar's. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure that's what it involved. Totally. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And so I, I think it's clear, you know, one of the things that we reiterate in the book is one of the callings of the Christian in, in an evil age, as Paul calls it, is to bear witness to the way. So advocacy for the unborn, for instance, is going to be to bear witness to the way of life consistently against the way of death. And that's going to show up in all sorts of ways. But what's interesting, it, it, you know, to bear witness to the way of life is always to do so not just according to the teachings of Jesus, but the way of Jesus. Um, to quote Willard, you know, we can't just do Jesus' things, we have to do them in Jesus' ways. And according to Paul, you know, that, that's the way of the cross, you know, as Philippians 2 very clearly kind of argues. You know, one of the interesting things about, you know, Philippians 2 as well as James 3, when you get to the way of the dragon, it's interesting to see what attributes that way has. 
you know, I would think, you know, if you just said to me, you know, before I wrote this book, you know, what, what is the way of Satan? You know, ugh, murder and, you know, anger and deceit. And James 3 says, well, the two main attributes are selfish ambition and jealousy. And, you know, that's really interesting. You know, what would our politics look like without selfish ambition and jealousy? Be unrecognizable. It would be utterly unrecognizable. What would it look like for, for our, you know, just political action in general? I would say our pastor's conferences would be unrecognizable without selfish ambition and jealousy. And so what's interesting is, you know, take someone, this is a weird example, but take someone like Martin Luther King Jr. I, for this book, I did a study of King. I, I, you know, I'd known him, of course, read his speeches, of course, but I never really gone deeper into a study of him. One of the things I thought was fascinating is, you know, he develops this view of nonviolent resistance because he recognized as from a Christian frame of reference, we are never standing against mere people. We are standing against the evil forces, what Scripture calls the powers and the principalities. And so he would say, if you're gonna if you're gonna resist someone nonviolently, the only possible way you can do that is if you don't hate them in your heart. And again, I wonder what would advocacy for the unborn look like if there is no hatred in your heart for the other person because you see them caught up in evil. It, it reminds me of, you know, one of the, one of the sages we, we interviewed for this book was John Perkins. And Perkins is an astonishing human being. And I remember talking to him and I, I, and I was reading his work and we were chatting with him and sitting at his feet. And I, I noticed at one point my fists were clenched because I was so angry at what people had done to him, that police had beaten him into an inch of his life because of nonviolent resistance. And, you know, like Martin Luther King Jr., he knew that, you know, nonviolence is always for the sake of violence, interestingly enough. Nonviolence is meant to awaken violence so the demons can no longer hide in secret. But you're meant to expose them to the world so the world knows the truth. And when Perkins was being beat to death, he thought he was going to die. He said he looked up into the face of those police officers and he said he saw white devils. And he knew in that moment he needed a gospel that was big enough to save them too. And I was so dumbfounded because all I could think about is justice. And by justice, I meant revenge. And he recognized if I embraced hate like they did, it would do the same thing to my soul. And I think it was such a—it epitomized the way of the lamb. So this is what you mean by power in weakness being the solution to issues of race. That's exactly right. And in your view, King has modeled— Beautifully, the way of Jesus. That is exactly right. And, and Perkins after him, you know, Perkins who, you know, Perkins was not as well known. You know, King becomes well known because he was a br- brilliant rhetorician, you know. And of course, you know, he, these, these massive nationwide movements, you know, Perkins really epitomizes for me. Here's a man who got out of the system that oppressed him and moved back because he felt called by Jesus. He didn't seek out recognition. He led Bible studies. He found ways to kind of foster community development and feeding the people that didn't have food and caring for them. And, and for standing against and bearing witness against evil, he almost had to pay his life. He almost had to give his life for it. And he was imprisoned and he was oppressed and he was abused. And, and he turned to love. I mean, it's astonishing. And I think this is, you know, for Jamin and I, you know, when we felt called to write this book, our first kind of turn to it was, no, 
you know, because it took us about a decade. You know, we started early 30s and like early 30, like they shouldn't be writing a book on power. And we very quickly knew that we had to be the bad guys in this book. Like we had to be very honest about our temptations. We had to take people on a journey of discovery with us because we weren't writing. A, sometimes you write a book from from expertise. Um, in this sense, we weren't. We, we were writing a book from people who had hard questions that we needed answers to. And it became very clear we needed to illumine others, sages in the way of Jesus, elders. And so we went on a mission to find the holiest and most profound and powerful Christian people we can discover. And we, we sat at their feet, and it was it has to this day has been the, was the most profound thing I've ever done. I mean, I and my guess is that for our listeners, if you name their names, some of them they won't have heard of. And that's exactly right. I mean, I think of someone like James Houston, mentored by C.S. Lewis. He'd be talking about C.S. Lewis. I'm like, man, how old are you? <laughs> like, I put Lewis so far back, and it's like here's a guy that that was mentored by C.S. Lewis, and. And there were several times when we're, we're sitting in his living room, and he looks at us, and he, he spoke to our souls. You know, James Houston started um, he, um, Regent up in Vancouver, a seminary. Um, it wasn't a seminary when he started. That's not what the original goal was. Its original goal was simply to train um, men and women to be mere Christians wherever they are. Yeah, he left, left Oxford. And he left Oxford to do, to do that, that with, with just a handful of students. And... You know, what's funny is in its early days, I, I had friends that were there in its early days, and they would say whenever you walked by Houston's office, you heard a weeping because a student would go in there for some sort of kind of question about theology or vocation, and he would say, oh, yeah, that's all nice, but what about this? And he would tear open their souls. And, you know, it's, it's – and he would do that with us, I mean, in astonishing ways. And we tell the story in the book. I remember, you know, his wife, um, Rita, who's now passed, sadly, you know, she she had Alzheimer's at the time and um, dementia. And every time she left the room, she'd forget we were there. So she'd come back and chastise James for not <laughs> introducing us. And, you know, and, um, you know we, we asked him at the very end. We'd spent three days with them, um, some of the dearest people you'd ever met. We asked James at the very end, you know what, talk about just, you know, the hardest part of your life when you realized, I, I have to kind of embrace the way of weakness. And Rita, who, who was very sharp and witty, and she would always be interjecting things, or, you know, she would often tell James, you know, he'd say something profound and brilliant, and she'd say, you just said that because you think it sounds good, you know? <laughs> the, the, two, the two of them were hilarious. And, and under her breath, she muttered, I could tell you in a couple of years. And we knew she was referencing, I could tell you about my weakness because it's this. She knew her memory was failing. And James stopped, and he looked at his wife, and he looked at us, and he, and he turned to us, and he said, you see, guys, Rita's losing her memory, and as she loses her memory, she's very worried she's going to forget Jesus. And then he turned to her, and he said, but I, but I constantly remind my wife, it is not that you remember him, but that he remembers you. And we're just sitting there in this silence, in this profound moment, where we see a life lived well and lived faithfully. And later he told us, he said, you know, people tell me all the time, it's so tragic what's happened to you. He goes, this is not tragic. He goes, everything that has been, that we've used as a crutch has been taken away. Now all we have is love. And I love my wife who, who is forgetting things left and right, who I after, and I meet her there because she is mine and I am hers. And it's like this, this is a view of humanity in the, under the cross that is unworldly in its best terms. And, 
you know, we sat with Dallas Willard before he died. We sat with Eugene Peterson. We sat with Marva Dawn. We sat with John Perkins. I mean, we, we were sitting with people. And, and you know, I, I, you mentioned earlier that we, this is the second edition. You know, one of the people we sat with was someone who I had considered a mentor, um, who was the mentor of Henry Nowen for those folks who knew him, who to this day is probably the most important person who's ever lived for people with disabilities. I mean, his life left a, a legacy that is astonishing. And, you know, we risked a lot actually going to interview him. He was the farthest theologically from where we were at. And we, we weren't interviewing because we agreed with theology. We were interviewing because the way he lived his life. And his name was Jean Vanier. And several years after the first edition came out, actually, we had just finished a pastor's conference on the way of, uh, the, way of the dragon and the way of the lamb. And it was a beautiful time. I actually I closed the conference somewhat ironically with a talk on how to how to discern wolves in sheep's clothing. And that evening, I get a call from my co-author Jamin, who led the conference with me, and he said, "Have you have you been looking at Twitter?" And I said, "No, you know, I'm just at home with my family." And he said, "Jean Vanier abused sex- sexually mm. several women." Mm. And we sat for an hour in silence, looking at these stories. That was Friday evening. At Monday morning, we asked our publisher to pull our book out of print. And, you know, that was a no-brainer for us. I mean, obviously, seeing that being pulled was was hard. Um, but we couldn't allow it to be in existence, knowing there's women out there that, that were abused by him, that were in his spiritual care. And we had presented him as a sage in the way of Jesus. And so, you know, it's interesting. The, the second edition is an attempt to wrestle through that issue specifically in our own struggles with with what do you do when a hero in the faith falls and lets you down so dramatically. And it's interesting, you know, my whole life is lived against the backdrop of this. My whole family became Christians in Bill Hybel's ministry. Um, I left and went, I left Willow Creek as a young man and went to a church um, with a toxic and abusive leader. Ravi Zacharias has been a hero of mine for years. Um, I could go on and on and on. And Jean Vanier was another one. And you know, he he never fit any of the cliches. He never abused any of the people in his care with, with disabilities, praise the Lord. And he he had a profound life. And, you know, it's interesting because the struggle now is how do I weigh that? Because he did teach me things about the way of Jesus. And yet I I have been devastated. You know, there's, there's whole centers around the world named after Vanier. Um, I can't tell you how many academic books use him as the primary example of the way of Jesus. I mean, I've talked to other authors who say our publisher won't let us pull this book from print, and I'm horrified that my book's out there. But I, I hope that what that chapter could do now is really help people navigate. Because I was surprised at what I felt. I was surprised at how much of the sin I took upon myself. You know, it's funny, when when, when it came out about Vanier— all these people reached out to me online and said, said, Kyle, you need to know we don't blame you. And I actually didn't know I needed to hear that. I was surprised. At first, I was like, I, I know that. And then I sat and I, like, with, with tears in my eyes, thought, wow, no, I, I actually need to know that. Because I, had, I was beating myself up thinking, what did I miss? What didn't I see? Why did, you know, and, try, and somehow I had taken it upon myself that I didn't do this, that somehow I could have done more. And I think as the church, you know, we, we really need, we, we desperately need to have the conversation about what power is in the way of Jesus. We desperately need to talk about what does it mean to discern true power from false power, evil power from true kingdom power. 
But we also need to discern what does it mean to care for the souls who all over the church right now are having to deal with the fact that their pastor or a mentor or someone they valued has imbibed a way of evil power, and they are now dealing with the spiritual abuse in his wake. Well, Kyle, this has been incredibly insightful, and I so appreciate in the book your, your vulnerability. You know, you, you and Jamin talk pretty openly about your own struggles and uh, especially your, your struggles with wanting to be significant, wanting to have a platform, wanting to be recognized in ways that the culture says is how, how we should do it, mm. which I think, I think you, you're right to point that out. I think that that's somewhat antithetical to the way of Jesus. Mm. But I want to commend to our listeners your book. If, you, I mean, if, you've, if this has whetted your appetite and you want to you read more, there's, just, there's so much more here than we've been able to bring out. The book's entitled The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. Subtitle, Searching for Jesus, Path of Power in a Church that Has Abandoned It. One of the things we'll, we'll do in a follow-up discussion is how some of this material relates to the workplace. Mm, because be I know mo- most of our listeners, you, you don't address this here, uh, but most of our listeners are slugging it out in the workplace week after week. And I'm sure would want to know a little bit more about how power and weakness uh, relates to the workplace. Totally. Oh, great so, idea. Kyle, thank you so much for uh, for joining us, and uh, this has been just so enlightening, so helpful, uh, and all the best to you as the revised edition gets rolling and uh, gets a wider, you know, wider acceptance. Thanks so much, Scott. So good being with you as always. This has been an episode of the podcast Think Biblically: Conversations on Faith and Culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Tablet School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including the Institute for Spiritual Formation, of which our guest, Dr. Strobel, is a faculty member there. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot in order to learn more. If you enjoyed today's conversation, particularly about the book, The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.